In this episode, I had a chat with Stephen Moore, ex-captain of the Wallabies, the Australian rugby union team. It was an enlightening chat around high-performance culture and the balancing of high-performance imperatives with the values of respect and humility. Interestingly, Steve's drivers for success are framed by his team's success. I found this both unusual and refreshing, for many high-performance-focused people have a more self-focused perspective. For those familiar with Steve's rugby journey, you'll remember his injury in his first test as Wallaby captain, which sat him on the injury bench for a year. Hearing how Steve coped with that setback was instructive and inspiring. Steve now works for the North Australia Pastoral Company, or NAPCO, as their general manager of corporate and commercial. When you hear Steve talk through this episode, you'll understand how his unique perspective from all that he's learned is serving him well in his transition to corporate life. It was a great pleasure chatting with Steve, and I hope you enjoyed the chat as much as I did. This is David Hobart from Beyond the Obvious, the podcast in search of unexpected insights for investment professionals. Steve, thanks so much for uh, catching up with me today. It's uh, what a gift and an honour. I'm really uh, thrilled to be able to sit down and have a chat with you, um, you know, given your colourful and interesting uh, interesting history. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks a lot for having me on. I've listened to a couple of your your previous podcasts and you know, hopefully I can um, share a few interesting things with the listeners. Yeah, perfect. No no doubt, no doubt in the world. Steve, I thought maybe we could start by, um, I mean, I know you came across uh, from Ireland when you were like five years old. And, you know, moved from the beautiful green rolling hills of Ireland to, of all places, Mount Morgan near Rockhampton. Heck, I mean, you were very young, but what sort of memory do you have of that move? Yeah, look, I think you're right to sound surprised about that because a lot of people do. Um, I was born actually in the Middle East in Saudi Arabia. Mum and Dad are both Irish and they were working in the Middle East in the in the early 80s as a lot of expats were Ireland was in a pretty deep recession around that time and there was big incentives for people to move to Middle East to to uh to work so I was born there and then I went back to Galway Um, myself and my sister were born in the Middle East and then my, my next two sisters were both born in Galway and at five years of age dad made a decision to to buy a medical practice in central Queensland in Mount Morgan so off we went. There was four of us under four at the time, and we we lobbed up in central Queensland in in the great little town of Mount Morgan. So, very very different from Galway on the west coast of Ireland. Different climate, different culture, obviously. So I'm sure for mum and dad, it would have been a massive culture shock. And I'm not sure why he chose Mount Morgan of all places. Um, maybe he had a, a dartboard or something, and he just threw it, and that's what came up. But Look, as kids, it was a wonderful place to grow up, and we could have been anywhere, and we loved it there. It was it was an open, plenty of open space, plenty of things for us to do, and and um, you know, plenty of activities to get involved in. So it was a great place to arrive. We spent a lot of time together as a family growing up, and um, yeah, that was my first taste of Australia, I guess. So you know, a pretty authentic uh, place to to lob first up. Well, certainly a good place to um, learn an Australian accent. So yeah. can you still pull off a? Uh, can you still pull off an Irish one? <laughs> I think I lost mine after about six weeks. You know, I was copying that much heat at school uh, about it, and and I lost it. You're about not going to give it a go. You're not going to just no, you know, no. give us a little. <laughs> no, I, I'll leave that to my old man and mum. I mean, they haven't. Theirs hasn't changed a bit since we arrived. And I, I think as you get older, you, you probably 
lose it a lot less. So, yeah, we, we all lost it pretty quickly and, um, you know, that was that was something that, that happened pretty quickly. But, yeah, mum and dad very much still got it. Yeah, no, fair enough. So when when, uh, when did you really get the bug for playing sport? I mean, was rugby always your thing or were you into a whole range of sports? Yeah, we lived down the road from the rugby club and also across the road from the swimming pool. Um, you know, everything in Mount Morgan was, was across the road or, or down the road, so mm. it wasn't a big place. And swimming and rugby were my first two sports. And because they were down the road, mum sent me across to the pool. So I did a hell of a lot of swimming when I was young. And, and then the rugby club was at the end of the street. So I started playing rugby when I was five uh, for Mount Morgan and we used to get on the bus on a Saturday morning and drive up the range to, uh, to Rockhampton, to the Big Smoke, to play against the, yeah. you know, all the teams there. And that was my first taste of rugby and running around in bare feet. And I remember the, the goalposts used to be made of old sort of PVC piping and they'd usually be on about a 45-degree angle. So... Uh, that's probably why I ne- never ended up being a goal kicker. But uh, yeah, that was my first taste of rugby and, and I guess, first taste of, of sport in Australia. Yeah, fair enough. So, now, did you stay in Mount Morgan all through school or where did you end up, you know, at high school? Yeah, well, after a few years in Mount Morgan, we moved to Rockhampton. Uh, we made the big move uh, to, to Rockhampton. We, we commuted a lot for a while. We went to school in in Rocky, so we drove up and back and then mum and dad eventually decided to move to Rocky and dad sort of commuted back to his medical practice, which is only about half an hour drive, so not a big distance. Um, And then I remember it would have been around 1996, uh, I was playing a lot of rugby in Rocky and there was an old old guy called Con Prima who who played for Australia actually and, and lived in Rockhampton and he had attended Brisbane Grammar School and he said to Dad one day, look, you should really send Stephen down to, to school in Brisbane and and to the boarding house at Brisbane Grammar and, and Dad, he did. We sort of found a spot late in the year and next thing I lobbed down at, in Brisbane at, at Brisbane Grammar School in the boarding house. So I started there in 1997 uh, in, in year nine and completed all my schooling there and, and obviously continued to play rugby through school. I was... Never a great rugby player at school by any stretch. If, if anything, I probably enjoyed cricket more than rugby and I never took it overly seriously, although we really loved it at school. So I often say to a lot of people, um, I was never really thinking about playing rugby professionally when I was at school. It was only till I left school that it sort of materialised a bit more and very much played rugby at school for the love of it and, and, and to play with my mates. Interesting. So you said you loved your cricket when you were at school. So why was it, do you think, that you ended up – well, firstly, what was it about cricket that you loved? Uh, I, I know I've heard you in the past uh, you know, speak fondly of your thought as a kid around Steve Waugh. Uh, was it more as the cricketer or more as the man, more as the captain? Like, What was it um, about Steve Waugh that was such an attraction as a young fella? I think when I was young it was about the cricket and – the, the toughness and, and um, you know, when you're young, you don't probably understand as much about leadership and, and team culture and things like that. But as I got older, I obviously became very interested in that. But I remember being very young, having a poster of Steve War on my wall and I used to read his, his diaries when he went away on his trips and I still remember asking mum if I could order the, the Gun and Moore autograph original cricket bat from the Greg Chapel Centre in, in Brisbane. <laughs> and I think that I might have saved up and maybe got that for Christmas. 
no one year. So, look, I, I had lots of posters on my wall, but Steve Waugh would have been probably one of the main ones that I followed. And, and when I went to Brisbane Grammar School, uh, cricket was a big sport there. We had access to some wonderful coaching from people like Bob Simpson and Ashley Mallett and Jeff Dimmick mm-hmm. and people like that who are legends of the game. And we're very lucky to, to have those people involved in cricket. And we could go in in the morning and have a net session or something like that. And I suppose that's where you start to sow the seeds of of, of discipline and commitment to something and, and just work ethic, just continuously practising your craft. And I think cricket is very much a sport where that is, is really important. You know, repetition and, and practice and there, there's no substitute for work ethic and repetition when you're learning a skill like that. And, you know, that applies to a lot of things that I, you know, I see in the business world as well. So... Now, I, I don't know for a fact, but maybe that's that's where some of the things um, you know started to to grow. Sure. So what what did um, what was it about rugby versus cricket? Like when you left school, and was it simply because you played rugby at school for the love of it, versus you know with a real discipline ethic around it, or or you more just physically suited, or like what was it about the choice for you that went from cricket to rugby? You know, I probably watched more cricket when I was in Rockhampton, I think. Central Queensland is probably more of a rugby league area than rugby union. So whilst I watched the Wallabies, uh, I probably didn't follow them that closely. Uh, with with my parents being Irish, we would have probably followed the Irish rugby team a lot closer in my first few years in Australia. So it wasn't until I came down to Brisbane that I probably started to follow the Wallabies more and you know, go and watch the test matches at Ballymore and things like that. So but cricket... I think it's a it's a pretty pure sport. You know, you can get out there and practice at home on your own if you need to. You know, you can go on the nets and do some work, and and that that's you know I really enjoyed that part of it. But uh, look, I I think it wasn't rugby. As I said, it wasn't any more important than anything else in my school life. You know, add to that your your academic stuff and your your study. It was just a part of of what we did at school, and we loved it. And um, you know, just form part of that overall education, I guess. So uh, it, it probably sounds strange to people when I reflect now, but that's very much what it was like at the time. No, I find it really interesting, Steve, because, you know, I've seen it in people in life where, you know, they kind of go along and they don't seem all that extraordinary in what they're doing. And then all of a sudden it's almost like a switch, you know, that something goes in their brain where they go, that's it, I want to do this. And then they become this obsessed, you know, well, they become obsessive basically and then, you know, uh, completely focused, myopic and determined to turn out and become the best at something. I wonder, like, is that what happened with you with rugby? Was it more gentle, like your evolution there? or like Because, you know, let's face it, you were at the top of the game globally. So, you know, how did you go from... You know, enjoying the game, doing it socially almost at school to becoming obsessive, you know, to become the best in the world. Yeah, so I left school and went to UQ to study science. Um, and once again, I was going to join the rugby club just more out of, you know, to play with my mates and obviously play some good rugby, but not, not nothing beyond that. And we had a really good Colts team in 2002. I think there was probably half a dozen of us that went on to play for Australia. So we had an undefeated season that year and I was the captain of that team and you know, five of us got, got contracts with the Reds out of that one team, which is quite extraordinary. And it was probably only then that I realised uh, that this could be something I could take a little bit further 
I started to work a little bit harder. Um, and, and it's things like sacrifice and things that, that probably aren't the first things that come into your mind as an 18, 19-year-old. You know, you're, you're at uni, you know, you're, you're around people who are just starting to, to have a social life and things like that. So it's not easy at that time to, to make those sacrifices, but I suppose that was the time when I, I started to have to do that and, and, you know, focus a little bit more on my rugby. And, and I still studied in the background, but the rugby started to materialise a bit more and I started to train full-time and, and then things sort of really ratcheted up from there. And, and that would have been 2003. And you know, I guess you know, I played my first test then two years later. So it all happened pretty quickly from there. And a uh, bit of a blur reflecting on that. But, uh, you know, that, that was the start of, of me sort of being, you know, laser focused about about rugby being, you know, a big part of my life and, and a big opportunity for me, I guess. So do you reckon it, it had... Um a bit, a fair bit to do with that initial Colts year, where you tasted some. Oh, one, you had a, obviously a crap hot team, like you were in a really good team, and you tasted some victory. Like it was, they were kind of the winning attitude that came through then. Like you got a bit addicted to that flavour of being the best at something, or like I'm, I'm kind of reaching here, but I wonder what were those motivating factors that kind of kept you ratcheting up and getting better yeah there's no doubt that's got something to do with it you know that success is it's an addictive type of thing you know winning things is people say winning isn't everything and it's not but it's certainly a nice feeling for a team you know to share with your teammates and 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 you get to a point where you want to you don't want to not have that feeling so that that's what drives you during the week because often we see you know, particularly in the professional game, you know, we only see the end product, really. We don't see what happens during the week. And the teams that are the most successful and win regularly, uh, the winning drives the work ethic and the discipline and the standards, the culture around the group week to week. And that's really the hallmarks of, a, of an elite team. It's it's the consistency of, of behaviours and really high standards that, that drives them to not only win every week but keep searching for improvement and performance and and I think we, we did that in a probably in a more simple way in that team. You know, we, we all were very sort of not not confident in an arrogant way, but we knew that we had a good group and we didn't want anything to come in the way of us us winning that, that grand final, you know, and winning that premiership. So and we committed to each other every week to go out and, and you know, it's amazing when you are on a on a winning streak or you you have confidence how your performance elevates, just like when you're not. And we're seeing that at the moment with, you know, a team like the Brisbane Broncos, for example, that they're not winning and they're probably having really tough weeks during the week, getting motivated, finding areas to improve, finding answers. And, you know, that the whole winning feeling really cascades into everything um, throughout the team or the club. So it's very powerful. Yeah. And how do you, actually get that i mean let's maybe talk broncos for a moment but like how you know you're sitting outside that tent with the broncos you're not inside it how do you go from you know where they are at the minute it doesn't even have to be broncos specific but but how do you go from a a period as a team where just things aren't clicking things aren't working to getting into that winning mindset that because i get that the winning mindset is something that um 
you know, it, it, it makes it so much easier for everyone to share the vision, you know. All the cracks really show when you're in, the, when you're in a hole and it's much harder to all sing from the same sheet. So in your experience, how do you go from a spot where the Broncos are today into a place where you start winning again? Yeah, look, I, I was in plenty of those teams throughout my career, uh, you know, in some really dark places. We, you know, had a string of losses in a row plenty of times. So, you know, I've been, I've been there, right? Like, I'm not – and it's not just the Broncos. There's plenty of teams around who are probably experiencing similar things. And it, it's not an easy thing to come out of, but the, the only thing that you can do is continue to work hard. There's no magic solution, I guess is what I'm saying. Just like when – you see teams winning. Uh, it's not a secret potion that they all drink in the morning, or you know, there's no magic involved. It's it's generally comes down to the pretty obvious things, and they are you know hard work, commitment, discipline. That you know, anyone who reads about high performance or, or team sport or business, for example, uh, would see the same things coming through. And a, a lot of the way out starts with with honesty as a group. You have to be upfront with each other and. Sometimes that can be uncomfortable, and honesty, an honesty culture with, comes from good leadership and people at the top of the organisation being comfortable with, with, with feedback, uh, being vulnerable to, to hear things they may not want to hear, and when you do that, you can actually take action. But if you hide behind that and, and sort of you know, don't encourage honesty and you, you bury things and, and hide things then that's when you, you can't actually take the actions required to get yourself out of it. So, uh, you know, as I said, I've, I've been there before and it can be a long road out, but it, it starts with identifying, you know, the things that you need to improve and being really frank and honest about that. And a, lo- a lot of teams don't do that, which is why they stay they stay towards the bottom of the pile, you know, and the teams that are honest with each other pull themselves out quickly and get back to where they need to be. Yeah, interesting. There's a couple of things there, Steve. One is, you know, in terms of getting a winning kind of culture back installed in a, so yeah, there's an honesty that's required uh, from everyone. Do you find, or in your experience, and we're seeing a bit of it in the world, certainly in the rugby world at the moment, where it occurs to me almost shortcut-ish, but I'm not sure that that's what it is, where you, you see some young talent like this young fellow that you know from King's School in Sydney at the moment that they're wanting to pay uh, allegedly a crazy amount of money to secure into the game. So you get a few superstars that are on outsized contracts within a group to try to build a winning culture around them. Uh, is that the reality of your experience or is it more like it creates a disincentive for other players in the group? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question and the answer is complex and you know, to use the example that we're seeing at the moment, uh, firstly, you know, I don't know the details of it and it's all, always difficult uh, when the media are reporting things and potentially that it's not accurate. Or, But philosophically, oh, oh, my, my, my deep view around this is the team comes first in all cases and Sure, you want good players around the team and developing good players, uh, but you need to have a, a real system and structure around how you introduce players into the professional game and you know what you what you pay people, etc. And I'm, I'm sure they do, but uh, you know I would be reluctant to be to be paying you know, 
a young a young player of any of any type. Um, some of the numbers that have been floated around. So, uh, and another thing would be, I think we need to identify the areas where we need to spend money, and you know, potentially that may not be one of them. So, yeah, very tricky. Uh, I think particularly at the moment with the game being, you know, in a financial sort of financially sort of compromised position and not really sure of what the future looks like. I think that they've got to be very careful and I'm sure they are, as I said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. You can't always be well, sure think of what's it... happened in the press, but yeah, I think no. and, and I think it's probably pretty fair to say that everyone wants the same thing, which is, you know, everyone wants rugby to thrive. They're everyone involved in the game wants rugby to thrive. And uh, you know, part of that obviously has got to be you want the wallabies to be you know, back to their best or back to the best in the world. Like that's the, that's the, uh, you know, motivating factor for a lot of people within the rugby establishment. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's easy, it's easy to chuck rocks from sitting outside, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and you, I mean, unfortunately we'd like to not be in a position where you have to pay a 16 year old a million dollars a year like that. But the commercial reality is, is maybe such that we do, but then you know, there's an argument there that would say, well, you simply can't afford to do that uh, at the moment, and you know the money. I'll give you an example. I, you know, I was I'm now on the committee of University of Queensland, and it was it was only a, you know, less than ten years ago that Rugby Australia used to give money to the clubs for grassroots rugby, and now mm. we're in a situation where the clubs give money to Rugby Australia. So it's completely flipped around, and you can imagine how that goes down in, in club land and grassroots clubs trying to stay afloat and and then they see something like this and you can imagine they you know, not wouldn't be um, you know doing cartwheels about it either so uh, I, I think we've got to consider the, the whole of the game and, and where how the game can survive in Australia going forward because if I've got one criticism it's that we, we continuously make the same decisions all the time um, and expect you know a different outcome and Unfortunately, we keep getting the same outcome, which hasn't been that positive lately. So, uh, you know, at some point we need to, to to really the game needs a massive shift in in the way it operates, and you know, I really hope we get that pretty soon because we probably haven't got that long. Yeah, sure. Your leadership through the Wallabies, in particular, you know, came at a really interesting time, and it's almost like your first stint. Uh, albeit briefly before you bunged your knee uh, in your first test as Wallaby captain, you, the, you're almost like the era that you came into as captain, the leadership focus was sort of more elders-driven, more respect-driven, more almost autocratic. And then it seems to be that the culture's shifted, not not, not just in the Wallabies, but society-wide, to be a leadership model that's a bit different, like a bit more empathetic and collaborative. And and you kind of straddled those two eras almost. I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but I'd love to get your perspective on, uh, well, two things here. One is, you know, how you handled that experience of, you know, bang, you get to the top, you were actually the captain of the Wallabies, and then, you know, you had to, you were sidelined with an injury for a year. Like, what impact that had on you as a person and then two, you know, how you handled that from a resilience perspective and disappointment perspective, but then how that shaped your leadership, you know, moving forward and or what was it that caused your leadership style to kind of modify with the times? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a good observation because it's very accurate. When I first came into the Wallabies, which was sort of early to mid 2000s, it was very much a rite of passage type thing. It was a it was a time and tenure type of leadership. You know, the the players that who had been there the longest probably had the most credibility and respect, and that they were the players who generally were were the leaders in the team. And and I was very comfortable with that. That's how it was. And I came in. I had to do my do my time, so to speak, and prove myself and I don't think that that has ever gone away or, or it shouldn't go away. I think that's an important part of of any team and, and, mm. and any type of leadership structure. But there's no doubt that that the group as a whole has probably changed a lot in the last 20 years. And, you know, I think the way you deal with people, uh, people now, young people need, need pretty continuous reinforcement. Um, now, whereas I, I would never have really expected anyone to, to tell me I was doing a good job. They'd definitely tell you if you weren't, but not necessarily mm. if you were doing a good job, you wouldn't always get much feedback. And you know, it was a bit like no, no news is good news sort of thing. So just keep carrying yeah. on and working hard and, and eventually you'll get there. So that, that's definitely changed. The, the whole feedback loop now is, is you know, it takes a lot more attention and I think young people now need more validation uh, they may be a little bit less resilient to, to what the previous generation were. If, if things don't go well, you know, I'm not sure if we're that well equipped uh, to deal with it or not not as well equipped as we maybe were. Um, and, and I see some of that maybe coming from from some of the junior teams and, and things like that. You know, we're, I would have started playing when I was five and, you know, we, we had grand finals. There was winners and losers there was you know blue red and green ribbon first second third if you had a running race and mm. and we sort of learned how to win but also how to accept defeat or how to deal with defeat and you know that that goes down to how you're brought up I suppose but I don't see that as much now I think I think we're very much trying to you know, bring up the next generation everyone is is equal and everyone gets the same thing and I'm not sure if that's the right way to be doing it but that's probably a conversation for, for another time um, mm. in terms of my own leadership uh, yeah yeah it was pretty tough going down in the first I think it was the first 10 seconds of the test match in 2014 it was uh, mm. you know against France here in Brisbane my hometown in front of a lot of my friends and family so you know I, I'd, I'd certainly kick I took that very seriously, that role, you know, the whole time I had it. So it meant a lot to me to, to be given that opportunity and that honour to lead my country. Uh, and, you know, the immediate shock, you know, once that subsided, I guess, you know, I had a very good surgery with a great surgeon, Peter Myers. Um, you know, I had the surgery two days later and I was I was on the road to recovery and, and I actually... I remember sitting in the hospital just thinking, you know what, like I've just hurt myself playing sport and you've only got to turn on the TV to see how much bad and difficult stuff is going on around the world and, and I wasn't that bad, that badly off at all and, you know, I would make a recovery hopefully and maybe maybe get to play footy again but, you know, there was a lot of people out there who were a lot worse off and, you know, I wasn't doing too bad. So I, I got a fair bit of perspective and I think that was really helpful for me in the recovery. You know, I kept I kept that perspective the whole way through my recovery and, um, you know, that, that really helped me, I think. You know, we, we can sometimes be in a, in a bubble, a 
professional sport, you can be a little bit isolated from reality at times. And I think it's important to all have that perspective on life. And um, and thankfully, I, I got the opportunity to, to make it back on the field and then, you know, to, to captain my country again the next year, which was a you know, huge buzz. And I'll be very forever grateful to uh, to check and, and the coaches for giving me that opportunity again because they could have easily um, you know, just just not done that. So that meant a lot to me. Yeah, well, to, to bring that perspective or to – I don't know whether that's innate or it's just through your upbringing, Steve, like, you know, to have that perspective because a lot of people, particularly – high-performance focused people that are, uh, you know, really wanting, demanding the best from themselves and from others uh, might have found that finding that perspective difficult. How, how do you, as a general rule, uh, have you struggled to find balance in terms of driving for uh, the best outcomes, you know, being demanding of self and others with perspective? You know, how have you managed that over time? Yeah, that's a it's a real skill, I suppose, and something you can never say you've mastered, in my view. And and it is a fine line because, you know, some of my personal values are things like humility and respect, and I think that's how I was brought up, and that's very important to me that those values are a front and centre of of anyone that I have the ability to to influence or to be around. And I think it's, uh, you know, probably if anything. You know, I can maybe overemphasize that stuff because high performance, it, it is, you have to be selfish at times in, in high performance to get where you want to go to. You have to be very focused and at times selfish. You know, rugby's a team game, so maybe a little bit different to, to individual sports, but you do need to be quite narrow minded about what it takes to be the best. And uh, I guess that comes down to the team you're in and the culture. That you that you foster within that team, and I do think you can you can get to be the best in the world whilst also re- remaining humble. And uh, I think we see examples of that uh, around the place. But there all there is always that element of, of self in all that because you just don't get there without it. Um, and I think that's uh, you know, you'll probably see examples of that you know, in a lot of different teams. And, and um, you know, I think it's a really interesting area of high performance is how you balance that that humility and that respect with with being being selfish at times. Yeah, so moving on to a more sort of the a more corporate subsequent to rugby, like you you know you've um well how how long have you been out now for Steve for, out of rugby? Oh, I've been out. I retired at the end of November twenty seventeen. So yeah, two and a half okay. years. Yeah, a bit over yeah, two and right. a half years. Yeah. So how personally have you handled that, you know, transition to retirement? A lot of high-performance sports people, you know, can struggle with the shift in identity and all that. Like how have you handled that? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good question because I don't think there's an answer that, that you can just roll out because it's so different for everyone uh, who retires from professional sport. I was very lucky to do it for 16 years, so... You know, I knew a lot about uh, professional rugby, the whole environment, everywhere around the world. You know, I became very comfortable in that environment and I'm not comfortable in a bad way, but very familiar, I guess, is a better word to, yeah, yeah. to use. So sure. when you when you step out of that uh, into a whole new world, you, ha- you have to be pretty vulnerable and you have to be prepared to, uh, to just listen. You know, you've got two ears and, and one mouth. Someone has 
said to me once, and I think that's really important when you're in a new environment, you've just got to soak things up. And I've tried to do that. Firstly, I was very lucky to have some great people around me to give me good advice on what to do next. And, and I'm very, very thankful uh, for people who helped me through that transition. And most of those people I'm still in regular contact with today. Uh, so yeah, I was I was lucky. And I think if I, if I had any advice to anyone coming out of one career into another, you need people to help you and to believe in you and, and to, to give you a, an opportunity uh, because it is difficult when you, you've been doing something for a long time. And, and I, as I said, I was very grateful to, to people for giving me that opportunity. And, and, and once you get an opportunity, then it's up to you to, to make the most of it. And, and as I said, I think the best way to do that is to, to listen and to, to take as much in as you can, to read as much as you can about your new, your new world. But thankfully, a lot of the things that I learned in my career in rugby have been transferable and I do enjoy transferring those skills and those learnings across to my new team. And probably the biggest difference there, I think, is, you know, you've got to be a bit more uh, nuanced about how you talk about high performance. You know, coming into the office here and saying, you know, we need to be the best in the world, I think that doesn't always get, you know, that doesn't really resonate all the time with people. So you've got to find, constantly find different ways to get your message across and um, into different environments, different types of people. Now, in, in professional sport, the vast majority of people are pretty laser focused and, and they, they get the, the high performance lingo and the language and they know what you're talking about most of the time. But it's just a way, you know, it's a case in the corporate world of, of shaping it to suit your audience and, that's something I've really enjoyed learning about. Well, it sounds to me, Steve, like, you know, your personal uh, value of humility has really served you in this transition period, you know, because, uh, you know, you've gone in with an open mind and a, and, and a grateful heart, which, uh, you know, is a, a bit different to, uh, you know, if you came in sort of cocksure and certain, then, um, you know, you, you, I'm sure your experience would have been very different. Yeah, look, and I, I think I, I never wanted to be sort of given in any opportunity because of my rugby career or, or what I'd done there. I, I was very keen to, to start afresh and, and build build a career independent of rugby. And it's very difficult because you carry that with you through, through that transition and and look, I probably initially tried to resist that a fair bit, uh, but I'm more at peace with it now. You know, I was very lucky to be able to do what I did over a long period of time. I'm, I'm proud of that. And, you know, if people want to discuss that, I'm, I'm happy to, to do that, you know. And I probably resisted a bit of that at the start because I was so keen to, to separate myself in a, in a new way. But uh, I think I've now, you know, sort of, come to the realisation that that will always be a big part of my life and, um, and you know, it's, I guess it's how you incorporate that into your new, into your new life and uh, the way you do that, in my view, is just to become as good at your new life as you, as you were at your last one, you know, so and then people respect that. Well, Steve, I get that, you know, you, you're actually coming to your new or relatively new career uh, with the perfect combination, actually, uh, from a leadership perspective, because you know there is in the corporate world at times a uh, you know in certain sectors there can be a almost mediocrity that can kind of settle into a culture, and then there's also there are times when you know cutthroat 
win at all costs can kind of fit into culture, neither of which actually are sustainable or work. Uh, and, you know, you bring humility, but you've also got a very keen eye to draw out the best in whatever it is that you're doing. So, I mean, I'd love to talk to that a little bit, just based on your experience to date inside a corporate environment. Now, you mentioned that, you know, it's difficult to sort of come in all guns blazing with a language of high performance. How have you found or, you know, what do you find is most effective in terms of trying to find that right balance in whatever environment that you're in? I think the key there is is to when a lot of people talk about culture, right, and, you know, what is culture in an organisation? And for me, culture is, is habits uh, and habits that are replicated, repeated, rewarded, in an organisation, that's what the culture is. So the biggest difference that I found coming from a team sport was that we, we would spend so much time together as a group that was, you know, we would travel together, stay in the same hotel rooms, eat dinner, breakfast, lunch together, obviously play on the field, train. So in any given day, the only time we're really not together was when people were sleeping and even then we shared rooms. So you were sleeping next to someone, not literally in the same bed but in the bed next to mm-hmm. next to someone so the amount of time you had to build this stuff is incredible and you know we we've got a, a re- remote business at the moment in in my new role and you know, everyone's all over the northern australia you know so i very rarely get to see my colleagues or most of my colleagues i've got a small team in brisbane that i work closely with that i see fairly regularly but even through COVID now you've seen you know, the dislocation of workforces all over the place and sure. and I don't think we've got the answer for how that's going to impact on, on team culture and team dynamics and I think it's easy to say that that'll be fine but I think leadership and culture is, is about observation, it's about behaviours, you know, it's about being around people that are that are elite and that, that's very infectious and that's that's why people like being in an office because you're around people and if you're a good leader or you have good habits and behaviours, that rubs off on people and it, that, that's a, it's like a, it runs, it permeates through the organisation and, you know, that hasn't been as easy uh, in, in the new world as it, as it probably was previously. But as I said pr- before, I've really enjoyed working out different ways to do that and... Uh, you know, whilst it's very hard to replicate that FaceTime, there there is ways out there you can you can do that. And I think leadership and culture is about just consistent behaviours. And once you've identified what those behaviours are, then it's about just doing them over and over and mastering those behaviours. And and that's all people want to see. They want to just see consistent behaviours that replicate what you say your organisation stands for. And, and it's only when you deviate from that do you have a, an issue, you know. So, so generally, when leaders come unstuck, it's it's simply because they've have deviated from what they said was important to the the organisation or you know, what the values of the company were, and um, and that's that's generally why they they come unstuck. And I, I think that's a very important thing to to think about. Yeah. Yeah, well, that whole notion of integrity, you know, doing what you say you'll do when you'll say you'll do it and just sort of, you know, standing there uh, and being, as you say, being consistent in word and in deed uh, can make all the difference within a culture but also to the, you know, to the performance of that, 
you know team in the broader context, whatever it is that you're doing. So yeah, no, that's that's right. Yeah. And if I could, if I could just add one more thing, yeah. um, another thing I've probably observed over the last couple of years is a lot of people think that leadership, high performance, is something that's unachievable or off in the distance, or it's only sort of you know restricted to elite athletes or people who are the best in the world, for example. But there's a hell of a lot you can do uh, that requires no talent. And I think if you do those things, you'll be a leader as well. Everyone is a leader and and you do it by your actions and and how you, you live your life. And I think it's important for everyone to realise that leadership, high performance, good culture, it starts with the very simple things that require no talent. And, you know, I think there's a misconception out there that, that often – you know, the, the high-performing organisations do things that other people, you know, they've got to find some secret or that, you know, you can't really work it out. But it's just that they do the simple things really well like, all the time and they rarely deviate from that. And that's what defines high-performing sporting teams and also high-performing organisations. So, you know, I think that's very important for anyone out there who'd be thinking, well, how do I, how do I learn about leadership and high-performance? And often, you know, you, you'll get the excuse that, oh, you know, that's only for people who want to be the best in the world or these, you know, really high performers, but it, it's actually the complete opposite. It sounds like, uh, though, I mean, you could summarise that into good habits, like developing good habits, is, which sort of you touched on earlier. You know, you, you develop good habits, see, you know, then their habits makes, uh, makes it, you know, if they're serving you and they're serving the the, you know the vision or the end that you're trying to achieve then um, then you just got to do more of them yeah that's right exactly and that, there's a really good little book you may have read it called make your bed and it's it's written by uh, an old um, Navy uh, commander from the US called William H McRaven and he gave a speech at I think it was Stanford University and he said the first thing everyone should do in the morning is make their bed and buy it by getting out of bed and doing that, you've achieved something and you've, you've started the habit of, of completing a task and you take that into your day and away you go. So that might not work for everyone, but that, there's just a small example of something that you can do that requires no talent that can prompt you in your head to start thinking about completing things, discipline, uh, standards, you know, all that stuff that if you do that throughout the day, generally you'll get things right more often than not. Yeah, perfect. So, Steve, just in time inside your current role, like what 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 is it that you're? I mean, you're at Napco. What is it that you're currently doing? Yeah, so I'm one of the general managers here, and I look after the corporate and commercial part of the business. So, uh, in my area, I look after HR, workplace health and safety, um, IT, and then corporate affairs and sustainability. So, there's a, there's a few different areas there. Yeah, wow. I've got, I've got got people in all those areas that 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 work in our team um you know i say our team because it's not my team and i i I often will hear people refer to things as as theirs and it's in a team it's it's about us and ours and you know the the collective so very much really drive that in our team you know very i would never say that it's my team because that's just not correct and i've got people that i work with Nobody works for me, um, and we've got a really good group, you know, that, that work really hard together and, and try and achieve uh, the outcomes that we need to. So, 
I've really enjoyed managing people in a different environment. Um, and I think it sounds simple, but getting the right people to start with is a big part of that. So uh, having good people in your team makes it a hell of a lot easier. So I've been lucky to be able to, you know, be part of recruiting as really good talented people that are experts in their area and that's that's very rewarding so uh, we look after that and you know broadly napco are a cattle business so we run 15 cattle properties all over northern australia uh, we've got about 185,000 head of cattle mm. uh, we we sell to to some major customers both domestically and and overseas so you know, it's a really interesting business. It's been around for 140 years. Started in 1877, so um, you know a lot of history in the company. About three years ago, QIC bought a majority share in the company, so uh, they're the major shareholder. There's still the family involved, uh, the Foster family, based in Tasmania, uh, who have been there since day one. So uh, they've got a lot of history with the company, and it's it's great that they're still involved. It, they're really adds to that history I guess and they're a very integral part of the shareholder base and that's QIC's first foray into agriculture uh, so it's been really interesting and you know corporate agriculture is, is always a challenge and mm. you know, when you have a 140 year old cattle business intersecting with a you know, institutional you know, capital manager I suppose then you know that there's always stuff you have to work through and get right and and you know that that's a really rewarding and interesting part of of the role and and of my role is is trying to you know meet the needs of everyone right from the the first year ringer up in the northern territory to you know a, a shareholder a qic or a board member who who needs um, certain things sort of executed and done so yeah we're getting about trying to get some of that done and uh you know, really enjoying it so far uh, as i said got a really good team and that makes all the difference. Oh, Steve, it sounds like, uh, you know, you're in a perfect spot. Like you, you know, you bring a, a, a collaborative leadership style to a business that needs a collaborative uh, leadership style. Uh, and, you know, you, you have a, an inquisitive mind and a natural humility that, uh, you know, makes you attractive as someone who you want to work with, which, uh, you know, as a leader is a really important and, um, you know, it's an admirable trait. So, mate, good on you for um, transitioning from rugby as well as you have and doing it with such an open mind and an open heart. It's uh, it's really lovely to hear it going well for you. Steve, I really, really value the time that you've taken to have a chat today. I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Mate, is there any sort of parting thoughts, anything that you might want, um, you know, to leave with before we sort of wrap up? No, I really, I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, you know, hopefully, I've given given some of the listeners something they can take away. And I think the message I'd leave with is that uh, never stop listening and learning. I think it's a it's a great. I mean, I listen to dozens of podcasts like this from people all over the world, and it's it's just the little bits you take from from the things you listen to, you watch, you read. That that's ultimately how you get better and if you got that mindset of continuously getting better and continuously improving, then um, you know you'll you'll be in a pretty good place because it's um, there's so much good content out there and um, so much great great things to read and see and people to observe that uh, you know that's why that's what I love about about the whole space around leadership and teamwork is that I think it's constantly changing 
and yeah. there's always something to get better at. No, that's for sure. And lastly, Steve, if people want to reach out and get hold of you, uh, where do they do that? What's the best place? Yeah, sure. Probably, I guess, LinkedIn seems to be the, the common uh, place or or uh, just get get hold of me through through work, through um, NAPCO, the North Australian Pastoral Company. So um, that would be probably your, your best bet. Yeah, perfect. All right, great. Well, we'll all link to your profile in the show notes. Uh, Steve, thanks again. Really appreciate it. It's been a great chat and, uh, you know, all the best for uh, Touchwood coming out of COVID over the coming months. Thanks a lot, Dave. Appreciate it. That's it for today's episode of Beyond the Obvious. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or on my website, davidhobart.com. Until next time, hooray.